Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello and welcome to Radio Days, the podcast. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos for your business, uh, or maybe you need professional photography, headshots, what about drone footage from a licensed drone pilot? All that can be found over at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Also, a quick reminder, our documentary about the history of terrestrial radio, Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio, coming later this year. If you uh, have ever been a fan or if you are a fan of radio, you're going to love this documentary. And if you'd like to help out and become a producer for Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio, you can do so uh, by clicking on the Patreon or the PayPal link. Also, um, you can find that information at Ron Robinson Studios. Also, uh, uh, our new merchandise store can be found at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Well, as we've completed 30 episodes of Radio Days, we're going to take a couple of weeks off, but um, we're going to go back to where it all started today. We're going to go back to the very first episode of Radio Days, the podcast. Now, as you may or may not know, I started this podcast to promote the movie Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio, 101 Years of Radio, um, and and one of the people who's been a big help with uh, with every aspect of this movie is Mike Staff, and he was uh, a no-brainer for my choice to do the first episode of Radio Days, the podcast. So um, get your popcorn, get your coffee ready, and uh, here's Mike Staff. Here's my interview with Mike Staff, the very first episode of Radio Days, the podcast. Mike, thank you for being our guest on the very first episode of Radio Days, the podcast. How are you? I am great. Thank you for those kind words, Ron. I really appreciate it. And thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's really, really cool. And, you know, I, I think about terrestrial radio, and I don't think there's any doubt that the very best days of terrestrial radio are behind us. And it's so good to be able to document this and to be able to share the stories when radio was like really cool, you know. It, it was. It was so many things to so many different people, um, and 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 that's why not only am I making the movie, but uh, I think it's exciting to, to 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 do this show because you know each week I'm going to have somebody who uh, is either behind the mic now or has been, and and I think it's it's important to uh, to keep that legacy alive for as long as as we can because, like you said. Terrestrial radio is, uh, you know, the best days are behind it. But, you know, we could have good days ahead. We, you, you never know. But I think both of us are big fans uh, of the medium, no question. Well, yeah, and I think that um, – I, I think it's going to be impossible for radio to have the number of listeners, terrestrial radio at least to have the number of listeners that it had before just because there are so many options now, you know. And um, so you don't need to go to terrestrial radio. You don't need to listen to the ads and things like that. But back in the day when I was on the radio, there wasn't any, any, there wasn't even the internet. So people came to the riff and to radio to get new music, to hear what's going on, to know who's coming to town. I mean, it, it provided so many different uses, but right now it just doesn't really need to do any of those things, you know? Yeah, exactly right. The needs of of everyday people are are different than they were 
uh, back then. And uh, um, But getting to you, there's a lot of things that I want to talk about today, including something amazing that you got to do on stage at the Palace during a Motley Crue concert. I know I can't, <laughs> I, I got to ask you about that. But but first things first, I, I got to start at the beginning. Let's talk about why and how you broke into the medium of radio, going from a fan of it to I, I want to work in this business. How and, and when did that come about? Yeah, I'm not sure how far back you want to go, but I remember when I was four years old, my older my older brother got the 45 to Led Zeppelin's Black Dog. And I put that on the turntable, and I didn't know what it was about it that I loved so much, but I would put on the headphones. I would crank that thing a 100 times in a row. I just couldn't get enough of it. And about that same time, I was introduced to WRIF and to be able to hear bands like Zeppelin and Sabbath and Deep Purple and these hard rock and bands. I just fell in love with it. And then I would sit like under my uh, my covers at night after my parents would put me to bed and I'd listen to the radio. And I just thought the DJs were so cool. And I love the fact that they were able to get the music first. They were able to shoot the music. I knew. I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be not only a DJ on the radio, but I wanted to be a DJ on the riff. And, um, that's, that's very, that's very singular, man. That's very singular. Oh yeah. I'm, and I'm, I'm very thankful that I had that passion for whatever reason put into me at a very early age. Um, because I know a lot of young people just don't know what they want to do. And I was the guy that always knew exactly what I wanted to do. There was no, there's no second for me. That was the only path. And, and I do have a lot of questions about those riff days because, oh boy, are they infamous. Um, but uh, I have mm. to ask you about one of your first gigs in radio, which, as it happens, is at my stomping grounds where I've worked so many times, WJR. Weren't you the associate producer for J.P. McCarthy? What was that like? Well, it was uh, pretty amazing. I actually got it, it was an internship with a cool title. And I was still going to Specs, and I got the internship at WJR first. And but I was a rocker; I was a total rocker at the time. But WJR's internship was the only one available at the time. Uh, I ended up getting one at Wheels a couple of months later. But I really I took the job because it was all that was there. But it turned out to be about the coolest internship a guy could have. I worked with their executive producer, Bill Plague who's just a great guy, taught me a lot, became one of my early mentors. Um, but I was able to work with him on the J.P. McCarthy morning show. And at the time, J.P. was the king of radio. There wasn't any such thing as uh, syndication back in the late 80s or kind of mid-80s at that time. So WJR is a clear watch radio station which means that there isn't a, another 760 a.m anywhere right. on the dial 32 so states the, and half so of canada is yeah it just booms i mean people in florida can pick up wjr um so jp was the morning guy and he, i mean he had sitting presidents on the air with him it's very difficult for a local radio station to be able to get a sitting president in in fact i think he talked to george H.W. Bush several times, and one of those times he was calling in, and Bill allowed me to answer the phone and just say, one moment, Mr. President, uh, Mr. McCarthy will be with you in a minute. So I wow. actually had a chance to talk to uh, a sitting president. Pretty cool. 
That's that's amazing. That's simply amazing. You know, I there's a great story that uh, that I got out of, out of Paul W. Smith, who I interviewed for this movie. Uh, he was talking about being in a room with Sarah Jessica Parker, and uh, when she found mm. out that he worked at WJR, she goes, uh, "I know that station. My dad used to make me listen to uh, the the baseball announcer." She said his name was funny. It was uh. er- Ernie Ernie Harwell? And I was like, "Yeah, that's awesome. That's WJR." <laughs> But, it uh, is. It's a part of Detroit, no question about it. So you've been on the air at a station in Macomb County, WBRB. It's no longer on the air. I think it was like 5,000 watts, right? I wish it was that strong. It was actually 500 watts. And uh, Dick Kernan, uh, who was the uh, vice president of Spec Howard, uh, used to kid around saying, you know, go home and look at your hair dryer. It's got 1,200 watts to give you an idea of how powerful a 500-watt AM station is. And I swear that... Um, the only ones that really listened to that radio station, at least when I was on, was my mom and my grandmother, because I could go on the air and and like give something away and nobody would call. In fact, there was a time where I went out and got my own things to give away on my show. So I went to a local car wash, and I got uh, maybe 25 free car washes to give away on my show. So I go on the air, and I'm like, hey, if you're my first caller, I'm going to give you a free car wash. Nobody called. And I'm like, okay, next time I go on there, I'll give you five free car washes. Nothing. Not one plate on the phone wow. appeared. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to see if I, I gave them all. Hey, if, if you are my first caller, I'll give you 25 free car washes. Nothing. So at that point, I'm just like, okay, nobody's listening. I'm just playing around. I said, <laughs> hey, I'll give you free car washes and $1,000 cash. Right. And as soon as I said that, one line started to ring, and I'm like, oh, no, I am so in trouble. I don't have a 1000 bucks to give away. I pick up the phone, and it was my mom calling me, reminding me to bring home milk when I, <laughs> when I got home. <laughs> well, that's humbling. <laughs> but it didn't matter, you know, because I was – I was practicing my craft. I was learning, you know, how to do radio and I was getting paid three thirty-five an hour to do it. So to me, it was a pretty good gig, whether or not people were listening or not. And despite the fact I was playing Barbara Streisand records, you were on the air. It didn't matter. You could have been playing, uh, you know, yeah. polka, whatever. So you worked there at WBRB. Yeah, exactly. Also, you went to WKLT in Traverse city, then WNCD in, uh, Youngstown, Ohio. Then, you went right to Riff in Detroit. What did you learn from those small market stations that prepared you for the spotlight of WRIF? My very first day of Spec Howard, Dick Kernan, again, the vice president of the school, came in. He's been in radio a long, long time. And he said to us, here's the deal if you want to be in radio, is that you are going to work uh, long hours. You're going to work nights and weekends. You're going to work every single holiday. You're going to get paid minimum wage. You're going to work formats whose music you can't stand. You're going to be fired for no reason. Other people who are less qualified are going to pass you up for opportunities. This is what radio is. So interestingly enough, all of those things happened to me between WBRB and WRIF. Of course. So, you know, I was, I've was i always been really thankful to Dick Kernan for kind of laying out the truth and saying, hey, you know, just understand what you're getting into. So when those things happened to me, Ron, I, I wasn't um, I wasn't all that, you know, bummed out or the wind wasn't out of my sail because I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm on the right road because I was told that these things were going to happen. So I'll just keep pressing forward, you know. So um, so that was like the biggest lesson from that whole chunk. 
But, you know, you've got to work in small market radio stations because, you know, like the story I just told about WBRB and nobody listening, it actually gave me a little bit more confidence to be on the air because you don't know what you're doing. So when there's not a lot of people listening, you can try different things. You can develop your on-air personality and you can just figure stuff out without a lot of impact because there's not a lot of people listening. I wouldn't have wanted to try to like, you know, learn my craft on riff. I just would have been terrified to have done that. But by the time I got to riff, I was in radio for five years. I had done morning radio at WNCD, the Wolf and Youngstown. I'd interviewed a bunch of people. I was ready to be on the riff. And um, so that gave me a confidence to be able to be a part of the same uh, on-air team as Arthur P and Steve Costan and Ann Carlini, Drew and Mike and and all those guys. So to me, having those small markets to kind of learn the craft was essential to my career. I, I know for me, my very first full-time, I, my first gig was like you at w, uh, WJR as an intern. I, I interned for the Joe Gannon uh, Appliance Doctor Show. But my first full-time gig was in Ludington, a station called WKLA. And it was there where, oh, yeah. like 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 you said, you know, you, you get confidence. But I think it's your second and even third job that you're like, okay, now I get how to make good radio. It, it was it, so. I'm guessing that happened to you in Traverse City, probably, and you polished your 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 delivery and whatnot in Youngstown. But I'm guessing you learned the most from Traverse City. Am I wrong about that? Second job. Well, I I learned a lot from Traverse City because it was an FM rock station. It definitely was the powerhouse of Northern Michigan. So it wasn't like a small station. It just didn't have as many listeners as Rick because there's not as many people who live in Northern Michigan. Um, it, the other thing is the programming philosophy of the program directors matters too. So the program director, uh, for those listeners that may not know, he's in charge of anything and everything you actually hear on the air. So he hires and fires air staff. He's in charge of the music. He's going to have to okay the commercials and things like that. So there's some program directors that are really conservative and they don't really want you to do much. And then there's program directors that kind of give you almost free reign so you can really be the personality that you want to be. So when I was at WKLT, our program director, uh, David Fortney, was a great guy. He had a teacher's spirit and heart to him, so that was great. But he was very conservative in terms of the way he wanted his DJs to do radio. In fact, during the ratings period, now in small market radio, you only get uh, one quarter of ratings. In major markets, you're always having ratings going on. But back then, it was only the spring book, and he wanted us to be really clean during the book. So he would actually have us write out every single word that we were going to say to every single break. And then he would take a red magic marker and cross off any words that we didn't actually need in order to teach us brevity. And then that left us like very short and succinct things to say on the radio. So while I hated the restriction and the kind of the project before every show of writing out every word, I wasn't a big fan of reading everything I said on the air either, but I really learned brevity and that is super important. So you're ready for the big time, but it's not everybody who gets an opportunity to, I mean, your, your dream job was riff. You're ready for it. You're, you're polished. You're Youngstown, Ohio. You're doing big time things. How did you get the job at Riff? Did you know somebody? How did that work out for you? Well, it was kind of an interesting thing. So um, Doug Podell was the program director of Wheels when I was an intern at Wheels. And Doug 
became a fast mentor to me and we've remained friends ever since. And he suggested I move to Traverse City to take the job at WKLT. So I just listened to this guy that I, I trusted. And then I got fired from KLT for stupid reasons. Wasn't really my fault. Uh, just like Dick Kernan said what happened. And I was actually on the beach for six months and I was sending out tapes and resumes and just trying to get a gig and I couldn't find a job. In fact, that Ludding radio, that Ludington radio station you um, used to work at, that was the only station that gave me an interview, an in-person <laughs> interview. I thought I was overqualified for the job. It was overnight and I didn't get it. So that was kind of discouraging. So finally, I put my with my tail between my legs. I called up Podell, who was at that point working in Cleveland at WNCX. And I said, hey, man, I got fired. Um, and he said, well, hey, I got a buddy of mine in Youngstown, and I'll get you the job. And I mean, 20 minutes later, my phone rings. It's the program director of the Wolf in Youngstown, Gary J. Um, said, hey, can you be here tomorrow? So I went down the next day, interviewed with him, and that's how I got the job in Youngstown. So Youngstown and Cleveland, they're only about 45 minutes away from each other. So after a couple of months, Doug started floating the idea to me of start doing some weekends on NCX. So I'd be doing mornings on the Wolf and I'd be doing weekends in Cleveland, a much bigger market, great opportunity. And right when this was going on, Jim Pemberton, who was the program director of Riff, who also um, got married and had Doug Podell be his best man in his wedding. That's like kind of like how ancestral radio is. Yep. Jim called me and asked me if I wanted a weekend gig uh, in Detroit, which would have meant I wasn't going to drive back and forth from Youngstown, so I'd have to give up everything and to go to Rip, which I did in a heartbeat. And uh, so I called Doug and I said, hey, I got a, an opportunity at Rip. I'm not going to be able to do the, CS, the NCX thing. He called Doug or he called Jim in uh, in Detroit and put in another good word for me. So it was kind of like a mixture of who you know and timing is what got me the gig at Riff. And then coincidentally, two years later, Doug finally got the job at Riff and he became my program director. Which is uh, uh, for another story, but be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. What was it like stepping into that situation? I mean, the all-star team of on-air jocks, uh, you know, you met Karen Savelli, Steve Costa, and Arthur P., I mean, was that yep. intimidating? Yep, and Carlene. Well, it was a little bit intimidating because I've been listening to these these people my entire life, you know, like Mark Daddy Addy and Peter Werby. Those guys were on riff when I was listening to the radio under the covers. Mic. And Arthur P., of course, too. Um, so it was, it was like I knew I was walking into the big time, and I knew I had to perform. And I do feel like I had the experience to be able to step up to it, and I think I did. Um, but I, I got to admit, man, that first time I opened up the mic at Riff and got to talk on it, um, it felt like the heavens parted for me. It was uh, <laughs> it was almost a spiritual moment. I just could not even believe it. And I became a true believer forever that if you can believe it, you can achieve it, you know? And uh, I, I love your story that uh, you were back at the board uh, and Arthur P. was on location. You want to share that story? Well, yeah, so um, in order to get me familiar with the board and the studio and everything, um, Autorama was going on uh, down at Kobo. So they, the, my first job at Rift, the first thing I ever did was just run the board. So uh, Ann Carlini was broadcast, or actually it was Steve Costan who was broadcasting from Kobo. But Ann was there, and 
Doug were there, and they were just kind of rapping back and forth. And at the very end of the broadcast, Steve thanked me for running his board. And then Arthur said, um, hey, uh, get on the air. Let's hear what you sound like. So I was like, sweet. So I open up the mic. And I'm like, hey, guys, how are you doing? And the first thing Arthur says, I haven't even met the guy yet. First thing he says to me is, oh, my God, he sounds like Steve Costan, which was both good and bad because Steve was the guy that I listened to that I thought was really cool. All of us radio guys have somebody that we kind of gravitate towards, that we want to emulate a little bit, that we pick up more pointers from that person than others. Steve was my guy. So, um, you know, when I get to rip, there was already a Steve Costan. There wasn't really room for a junior. And I developed my style to sound so much like him. Um, Before I got to rip, I really had to learn fast who I was going to be on WRIF. I can't, that is interesting. I can't even imagine because if you grew up in Detroit, I mean, for me, just like you, WRIF was it in those days, you know, and everybody still talks about the dread card, Mike, but how cool were those WRIF oh, stickers yeah. with the names of all the cool bands at the time? I mean, that which reminds yeah, me, all of- how can I get my hands on one of those triumph rock stickers? Do you think any of those are still around? <laughs> I might actually have one in my collection. Oh boy! Um, I had um, I had collected those stickers when, from being a kid, and it used to be send in a self-addressed stamped envelope and riff, you know, into riff, and they'd put a couple of bumper stickers in it. And they, anytime a band came through town, they would put the band's name on the sticker. So there's, I think there's like 470 different variations of that oval sticker now, and um, I had collected maybe. 50 of them in my childhood. And when I got to riff, I walked in the prize closet and it was like walking into Santa's workshop or something because every riff sticker was in there. And it's like, Oh man, I got to take one of everything, you know? And the promotions person's like, yep, you're just doing what everyone else does when they first work at riff. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, they want to get one of everything. Uh, It was really cool. Now I've always been real jealous of you since I found this out because, you know, I come when, when I was, on radio stations, it was all about playlists. And when you started out, mm-hmm. and I found this out, you're you're playing deep tracks of Triumph. I'm like, wait, what? Doug Podell and other PDs let you guys do that? But radio, that's how, how far radio has is, is, is evolved. But when I came through, we, we weren't playing our own stuff. We, if it wasn't, in fact, if it wasn't, if, if they weren't playing on, on national radio, we probably didn't play them because, you know, and that kind of would take the ball out of your hands. You, you guys were, you know, big on playing the music that was good, regardless of who it was from. Yeah, it was really interesting for me when I got to riff because there was a playlist at riff, but I was, you know, for my first maybe year, I was kind of buried in the overnight show. And I remember the first time I walked in there for it, I asked the DJ before me where the playlist was. And he said, there is no playlist. I go, what do you mean? He goes, you can play whatever you want overnight. (laughs) And I'm like, anything I want? He goes, anything. I said, so I could just put on side two of the wall if I feel like it. Yep, absolutely. I can play deep triumph cuts if I feel like it. He's like, I don't know what you're not getting. Play anything <laughs> you want. And I was like, oh, my God, yes, I've arrived, you know. So it was really fun. It was challenging, though, because when you have a playlist, you have all your music and you just kind of follow along. It takes a lot less thought when you have a playlist than when you have to fill six hours of time with um, one song after another after another. Um, So it did make me think a little bit 
a lot of bit more actually, but it was so much fun to be able to do that. And that was before Doug got there actually. And then when Doug did get there, Doug believed in personality radio. He understood that that's what Rick was founded on and he wanted us to be personalities. So while he had his playlist and we knew there were kind of perimeters that we had to follow, if there was a good reason to, to go off the playlist, he was totally cool with it. Plus Doug was famous for doing it himself. In fact, like I'd be on at night and Doug would be driving home from a bar night. He would, feel like hearing something from the Rolling Stones, so he would just call in and have us play something that he wanted to hear on the way home, you know. That's fantastic. <laughs> so it was really a cool time. Um, now, when you did get settled in at the Riff and, you you know, you got your feet under you, you seemed to be the go-to guy for the interviews, the, the guy who interviewed all the rock stars when they came to town. How did you get that gig? It actually worked out really, really good. So my belief was to always say yes, never turn down an opportunity. So I, I always was the first one to be able to raise my hand to do anything. And see, and this is something I like young listeners to be able to really hear loud and clear is that human nature makes us a little lazy. And, and um, it says water travels down the path of least resistance. So I knew that people at the Riff, if they had some sort of shift to cover, that if I always said yes, I would make their job that much easier because they wouldn't have to call multiple people to just fill a, a spot. So I always said yes. So I, I kind of almost trained the management to always go to me first because I was kind of, I was the one that would always do it and say yes. So that was a very big part of it. And then another part of it is that I think I was just such a fan of the music. And I've always believed in being very well prepared for things. And I think that I just did interesting interviews because I really did my homework and I was a true fan. So I could approach an interview um, you know, from kind of both sides, from almost fanboy type of uh, perspective, and at the same time from somebody who's in the business, who understands what's going on, that can ask, ask some interesting questions. So I, I just think the interview started to resonate. And then it's like anything, the more you do something, the better you get and the more comfortable you get. Because when you do your first couple of interviews, you're just like, you're pretty blown away that you happen to be standing next to this person that you've been listening to your whole life, you know, and you could be like that for a second, but then you got to get into professional mode right. and you got to now conduct an interesting interview. So at first it's just like, it's a little awkward and you're really excited and you're getting used to it. But after you do it for a while, it doesn't lose its cool factor. You just become used to it and more comfortable with it. And then you can do a lot better interviews. Now, I know you're not good at name dropping, so I'll do it for you. But one of my favorite story, Mike Staff stories <laughs> is uh, how you met Tommy Lee because he, he, uh, he developed into a friend that we'll talk about in a few minutes. But uh, talk about uh, the time you interviewed uh, Motley Crue when they came to town. Well, the first time I ever met Tommy Lee uh, was in the era of Motley Crue when Vince Neil was not with a band and John Karabi was singing. John Karabi also sang with a band called The Scream. And they did one album, one tour together. And we were broadcasting live from the DTE Energy Music Theater, which we always called Pine Knob. That's what it was at the time. We're broadcasting from Pine Knob in the parking lot. And we have a 10 by 10 tent set up. 
And I'm just talking to Arthur P. on the air about the upcoming Motley Crue concert. And I see a tour bus come in and there's no cars in the parking lot or anything. It's like, you know, four o'clock, three 30 in the afternoon. And the bus just started coming right at us. And it was like picking up speed, picking up speed. And I'm live on the air. And I'm like, wow, it looks like Motley Crue's tour bus is here. Wow. It's, it's coming at us pretty fast. And then it just stopped right in front of us. And Motley Crue jumps out and they were listening to the riff, listening to the interview. And they just jumped right into the interview and Tommy, um, Tommy and I just kind of like became um, kind of friends that night, you know. I mean, he hung out after we got off the air and invited me on the bus. I talked to him for a little bit, and then after the show, I went and went and talked to him. And then, like, that was how we were introduced. And then it just kind of turned into this thing. Every time Motley Crew would come to town, I would find a way to get back and talk to him. And then, you know, we just end up being pretty good friends. Where um, you know I would I would I would spend a lot of time with him when he was here. I drive him around from place to place. Would always go to dinner. Uh, always drop him off back at the hotel. Things like that. It was really cool. You know, I have a question that I've been asking everyone who appears in my documentary. Name something that that you've never experienced that you would have never experienced had it not been for your job as an on-air personality. Do you have? And I know you do. Uh, that's what I've been teasing. I can't believe do you have a, I can't believe this is happening moment that you can share that happened because of what you do. <laughs> well, yeah, Ron, we've been friends long enough. I've shared the story with you. You know, exactly. The, the one big one is because of my friendship with Motley Crue. Um, I was, I was dating, um, Danny who turned in to be my wife and I really wanted to propose to her in a really cool way. So I asked Tommy who had met my, my girlfriend at the time, later my wife a numerous times. So he, he knew her pretty well. And I said, Hey man, I'm getting ready to pop the question. I'd love to do it. Um, like d- before or after you guys play when you come back in October and he's like, dude, yeah, roll that'd be awesome. That'd be great. So instead of like just before or after, which I was kind of thinking of like right in the middle of the concert, he was playing this little melody on the piano and he's showing pictures of Pam because he was married to Pam Anderson at the time and their kids. And it was this perfect kind of like sappy Motley Crue moment. And then he walks up to the mic and, um, and introduced me right in the middle of the concert. The whole band is on the stage. I brought my wife out and uh, dropped to one knee and asked her to marry me. Thank God she said yes, because that would have really sucked. That would have been the one thing in radio I never talked about again. <laughs> you know? But um, she said yes, and then the band put us on the stage and sang Home Sweet Home to us. And um, that was pretty crazy. There's no way that would have happened if I wouldn't have had doors open like they did by working at Riff, you know. You know, every time I think of the coolest thing that happened to me in my career, I'm always Wayne and Garth around Mike's staff. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. That is one of the coolest. I mean, you, that's a mic dropper. I mean, you asked your, come on. That's like, that's like well, dream Well, and a stuff. lot of DJs were like, you know, a lot of DJs were like, you have pretty big balls to ask Motley Crue if you can do that. But <laughs> I, I didn't feel like, I, I knew it was a big ask. I even asked him. I said, I know this is a big ask. I know you can say no. I'm just throwing it out there. But because I had the relationship with him. He was excited about it. If he had to say, yeah, if he could do it, he would do it. I knew he would. And if it wasn't cool to ask, he would have just said, yeah, that's not going to fly. But turns out that it did. And it was really awesome. You know what? My only regret, though, from that whole thing is that that was in 1997. And we didn't have the smartphones that we have now. 
And so I actually had a friend of mine uh, from Riff have a video camera. He was up in front of the stage, so he videotaped it. There was one other person in the audience that was like uh, bootlegging it on video who later sent me um, a a tape of it. But now if that were to happen, I could go on the air and ask for everyone's perspective, and I can get – you know, 5,000 different perspectives, right. you know, yeah. it's been really, really cool. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's a cool mm-hmm. story, but th- that's a big story, but you've got to do a lot of, a lot of other cool things because of WRIF was, was it, was it everything you thought it was and more? Because you were there, I think what, 11 years? I was there 14 years. 14 years. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, um, I mean, it was, it's just really one thing after another, you know, someone once said, if you if you find a job you love, it will never feel like work. Um, I mean, my job was one step past that. It always felt like play. I just couldn't believe that I was getting paid to do all of these cool things because I was that go-to guy. I, I mean, there were weeks that I could have interviewed five, six bands in one week. And oftentimes, again, you kind of get used to it. So I, I felt comfortable asking the band, hey, is it cool if I bring you guys out on stage and introduce you? And, you know, half the time they would say no, and half the time they'd say yes. So there's always some cool opportunities to do that. In fact, once I, um, I, I had a chance to introduce ACDC on stage at the Palace. And see, the way these things usually work is the house lights will be on. It'll be like five minutes before the band is about to take the stage. And they let you go out and just kind of like welcome the crowd and say a few words with the house lights on. Sometimes they put a spotlight on you, but not always. So I thought that's what was going to happen. So I'm walking out to the mic and I get about halfway there and the house lights go black and everything is pitch black. I can't even see the mic. And then a spotlight comes on the mic, so I walk up to it, and I'm a little like, okay, this is interesting. So I start talking on the mic, and then I hear Angus Young behind me start playing Thunderstruck. Wow. And he was just doing that riff, that da 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 And, man, I, I mean, it just amped, amped me up. And I was like, are you ready for AC, Aspen, DC? You know? That's and I awesome. walked off stage, and I, got, I high-fived every, all the band on the way off kind of the side of the stage. I mean, that's one of those things that it wasn't even expected. It just kind of happened. And I swear I was trembling with excitement and adrenaline for oh, yeah. three days because it was just like, did that just happen? You know? Is that If that's not one of the most uh, pumped up, you know, get me jacked up songs that there is out there, I don't know what is. I mean, if people talk about Back oh, in yeah. Black, but Thunderstruck, that whole beginning guitar riff, come on. Anyway. Oh, yeah, the way it just builds and builds. <laughs> Here's something that most people don't know about you. You're actually an author. I know if, if you don't have enough talents. Uh, your book about breaking into radio for me at the time was very inspiring. Uh, about breaking and entering, I want to talk about it. I remember reading it and being so inspired. In fact, that I think uh, at the time I was an instructor at Specs Howard, a school of broadcast arts, and I asked you to come in to talk to some of my students, and you were gracious enough to come in and to talk to a couple of my classes. Why did you write that book, Breaking and Entering? And besides mine, what kind of feedback did you get after you wrote that book, Mike? Yeah, you know, it was interesting because it, I did have the coolest job in the world, at least the coolest job of anyone that I knew. And no matter where I went, people would always ask, like, hey, man, how'd you get that job? And I thought, you know, if I had a nickel for every time somebody asked me that job or asked me that question, I'd be rich. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. Hey, twenty nine ninety five plus shipping and handling. So I thought, like, wow, there's a real, there's a niche for a 
for some information like this because there's a lot of people who definitely don't want to go to college or don't have the resources to go to college. But even Spec Howard at the time was a chunk of change. And, you know, so it, that was a very big commitment for somebody to take. So I thought, wow, if I could put together a really cool program, not only a book, but some audio cassettes um, and make it like a program to just give people the fundamentals on how to break into the radio industry, I think it could be useful to people. So that's what I did. And I wrote the book. And, um, you know, at the time, computers just weren't all that commonplace. I wrote that book longhand on yellow pads of paper and um i i couldn't tell you how many dozens of those i had scratched out and everything and i ended up giving it to somebody to transcribe it and type it out for me and um and i got it published and i I was like one of the first e-commerce websites it's funny there's a website that you go to to look at all these old websites and i i recently went and looked at my first website and it was so old school (laughs) but i was one of the first people to be like selling things online. So that was really a cool experience too, to be at the kind of the the cutting edge of watching e-commerce take place and seeing like, wow, this um, tool, the internet allows me to introduce myself and my product, my program at the time to people all over the world. So as soon as I posted that and I kind of learned a little bit of marketing on how to get people to go to the website, I was, I was selling that thing all over America. And I also sold it in 14 different countries, wow. which was, was totally bizarre to me. Um, and I actually got a really nice email from a guy um, who worked for the BBC in England. Now the BBC is like as big as it comes in England and probably in that part of uh, the world, you know, and he was like, now he had a really cool show on the BBC and he said he, he got my book and that's what kind of got him the confidence to take the first steps that were necessary for him to begin his career. So that was always really satisfying. And I had a lot of people, especially in Detroit, uh, interns, you know, would come in, I'd give them a copy of the book. Anyone at Spets who wanted it, I'd give them a copy of the book. I only ended up selling maybe a thousand of them or 1500 of them. Um, I probably gave equal amount away, but it, it was cool. It opened up a lot of doors to be able to talk to people about getting started in radio. I'm kind of, I have a teacher's kind of spirit myself. I love being able to teach and I'm a big fan of doing what you love to do. I'm a big fan of not getting stuck in a cubicle if that's not where you belong. Right. And anything that I can do to help other people reach some of their dreams, it just makes my dream that much better. So you're riding on top of the world. You're interviewing rock stars. You're the epitome of uh, the 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 Nickelback song, and your your life's good. You know, your <laughs> things are going good. But uh, when did you know it was time to leave Riff, and why? And talk about that whole scenario because that had to be tough for you. It was a huge decision. So I was at Riff for 14 years, and it was about 10 years into it. And that's when I was like. I was really in a groove. Things were really clicking. And I had a good friend of mine, Dan Nichols, who was a wedding DJ. And he, he suggested that I DJ weddings. And at first, I was almost a little offended. I'm like, what are you talking about? Dude, I'm a real DJ. I just interviewed Aerosmith right? last week. <laughs> Why do I want to be a wedding DJ? And he looked me dead in the eyes and said, because you can make $1,000 a night. And I'm like, $1,000 a night? No shit. I can DJ weddings, you know? What? So I, um, I I shadowed him, and I could not believe 
how much fun it was to DJ a wedding. I mean, I was hooked from the very first one because when you're on the radio, you're in a studio alone. And when you play a cool song, or at least a song that you think is really cool, you have no idea how your listeners are responding to that. They could be cranking it up or they could be changing the station. But when you're in front of a live group of people and you're playing playing music and you have the additional responsibility of keeping them on a dance floor, it's really important you're playing the right stuff. And when you're doing it right and when people are responding, then you can build this energy up on the dance floor. And it was just off the hook fun. Um, it was just, it was a completely different DJing experience from being on the radio. I love the fact of, you know, at the end of the night, uh, not only would the couple come up and give me a hug and thank me, the parents would do it, people in the bridal party. I fell in love with DJing weddings. So I ran a couple of ads on my show and I, I did pay for them, but I had the, the benefit of being like, Hey, that's Zeppelin on the riff, blah, 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 blah. Hey, by the way, if you're getting married, I DJ wedding. Here's my commercial and boom, go right into it. And I only had to run a couple of those things. And my entire year schedule was just full. And my buddy that talked me into it was like, man, maybe you can run a couple more and book me. I'm like, I'll, I'll try. I mean, they were calling because they were going to get the riff guy, but you know, I'll, I'll see if it would work. And it did. And another buddy of mine saw, you know, hey, maybe run some more. Before I knew it, I had five DJs and I had eight DJs, 12 DJs. And we started offering videography. Then we started offering oh, yeah. photography. And it just like, it just kind of gave birth to this, this really cool business and this really cool industry that I fell in love with. So, you know, for about four years there at Riff, I had the luxury of loving my gig on the Riff and everything I was doing and equally loving going to weddings and performing at weddings and also building my business was a lot of fun. So I was doing them both and I, um, I just got married and we're, we had our, our first baby and, and then we had our second baby. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, going to the Hayloft West um, at night just wasn't as fun. I wanted to be with my family, right. you know, and it became, it became harder for me to pull myself away from my family on the weekends to go do weddings. And I just kind of felt like I was at this crossroad where I had accomplished all of my goals in radio. And I had this kind of this new path where I'm a, I'm a dad now, I'm a husband, I really want to build this business. And at the same time, I always had the idea of living in Traverse City and raising my family in Traverse City. Because when I worked here, I was 18 years old working at WKLT, I just fell in love with it and the, the friends that I got up here who were from Traverse City they all loved growing up in this area so I always had that in the back of my head that I'd love to raise my kids in Traverse City so when I kind of got to that crossroads I gave up one dream to pursue another and um, you know and move to Traverse City and it was so interesting for me because I loved my 14 years at Riff I loved the people I worked with I loved everything I was able to do. And at the same time, I was building this house up in Traverse City and I had this other dream. So after my last show on Riff, I, I'm not embarrassed to say it. I cried every single day for two weeks because I was just mourning right. and at, um, giving up Riff. But at the same time, I was almost like celebrating how awesome and amazing it was. Sure. 
And it was really great for me to be heading towards something that I really wanted to do that I've been dreaming for for a long time, too, and would benefit my family in the long run. So, you know, sometimes you have to say no to some things in order to say yes to another. That was one of those situations. And uh, and thankfully, it really worked out well. But they, they threw you a good going away party, didn't they? There was the official party. And then my last day on the air was at Harley Fest. And um, which we were doing at Freedom Hill that year. And so it was a big party anyway. We had a lot of bands there and every DJ from the riff was there. And it really warmed me up because um, my last break on the air, everyone was there. And Carlini, Screamless Scott, Arthur P. Drew was there. Um, um, uh, Steve Black, Meltdown. I mean, everyone who I had the chance to work with was there. I had this great picture I have I have a blown up poster size two feet by three feet of um, of that last break that we're all doing together and it was just a really cool way of of kind of like putting the final exclamation point on my radio career you know and then a couple of weeks later we had like a real party I'm not allowed to talk about that <laughs> but but you did have your Alan Trammell <laughs> moment for sure you had your Alan Trammell I moment. did yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah for sure <laughs> let's talk about Mike Staff Productions like you mentioned uh, you know it started as just DJing your wedding now you're doing uh, wedding videos uh, what does the future hold for Mike Mike Staff Productions well you know um, this COVID world has um, really made small business owners have to you know, reach down into their creative uh, brain to be able to think of different things to do. So we've been doing DJs and videography and photography, and it's really cool for our clients to be able to get all three services from one company. And they really found that using that kind of that team approach um, was really easy for them to wedding plan. And then it worked a lot better when everyone arrived at their wedding reception because our team knew each other and they were able to work together and help each other be their very best. When COVID hit then, we we're like, our business is down 76% this year because, you know, I mean, so many couples had to reschedule their wedding. And so we we're looking for a solution to some of it because a lot of couples were still getting married, but they can only have 10 people at their wedding. So we started live streaming, which has turned into a really cool thing. In fact, the first one we did was on a Saturday afternoon. And I was out of my pontoon boat on my iPhone watching this <laughs> wedding happen live. It's like the technology. technology itself is crazy, you know. But also knowing that um, that this couple's family all over the country, including their grandparents, were able to be there for that really cool moment in kind of a disappointing time. It was really cool to be able to be the solution to part of the problem for that. And I do think that live streaming is going to stick around after COVID is long gone sure. because it's just too cool. There's always people from other parts of the country that aren't going to be able to make someone's wedding. So it's really cool to be able to provide that to people. And, and I, what I think is, is amazing as I went online, you know, cause I do show prep much like you do uh, or used to uh, and looking for stuff. And you can't find when you, when you look at Mike staff on YouTube, you're it's all like testimonials and, and people talking about what a great time they had when, whether you're, whether they, whether you DJed their wedding or, or whether you now with the videography. So, I mean, you just need to look at YouTube videos to see to, to the kind of quality of, of work that you guys provide. So 
hats off to you. I, I couldn't be more happy that you're successful with that because your work ethic is definitely matched with a fantastic idea. Who would have thought that a, a, an on-air personality as a wedding DJ would work? <laughs> right. I mean, who knew? You know, I was actually um, – I, I think I was one of the few people that were able to figure out how to monetize um, my name recognition and the, the kind of the – the, the love from the listeners and the fans, how to turn that into like some, a, a real income because radio people, we don't get into this business to make a lot of money. I mean, sure. Some people, the Drew and Mike, the Dave and Chuck and Eric the peas and those, those people definitely make a lot of cash, but most the rest of us aren't really making a lot of money. So to be able to figure out a way to kind of like capitalize on the name recognition was a really cool thing to be able to do. And it did give me a head start with my business, but you know, I'm, I've become a, a student of marketing. And one of my favorite marketing quotes is that all marketing begins and ends with the quality of service that you're offering. True. especially now with YouTube and review sites and everything else, you can't run from crappy service. You can't run from not keeping your word anymore. So, um, you know, having this environment in which everyone is talking has really bowled well for us because from the very first wedding I did, I felt the tremendous responsibility to be able to give people something special for their wedding. And I've been able to kind of put that mentality into all of our team members so they kind of go out with the same attitude and you know i always say we've built the business with just one couple at a time one moment at a time uh during their day to be able to get those kinds of reviews and the referrals and everything else so yeah it's been it's just been a dr- another dream come true you know and, and if that wasn't enough to keep you busy you, you you've been working with wrif again haven't you talk about what you're doing because you, i've heard some of your you're doing podcasts what what is it you're doing for riff again yeah, I was so thrilled, you know. So I've been gone from Riff for 14 years now. And um, about maybe mid-year last year, June maybe of 2019, I get a call from uh, from Mark Pennington, who was the program director of Riff at the time. And he asked me, he told me like, hey, the Riff's 50th anniversary is coming up. We want to do something special leading up to it. And we thought we would, um, you know, do a podcast in which we interview, but much of like what you're doing, Ron, interview all the people and personalities that have made Rip so cool over the years. And we'd like you to be the host. And I mean, I was blown away, one, because I'd been away from Rip for so long. And two, I am a fan of Rip. I love the Rip. I'm friends with all the people um, that I've worked with and I, that have worked there. So it was a really good fit and it was really, really fun. You know, it's funny because now 14 years after I've, I'm done working there, I'm still learning things about the rip that I didn't know that I really, some things that I probably should have known, but I just didn't. Um, so it's been really cool cracking open this, this nut and getting these stories from all kinds of different perspectives. You know, the first podcast we did was with Arthur P. That is obvious why. Um, and because he was there the whole time um, up until just, you know, maybe seven years ago. Um, so he had some great stories to tell. And then to get into like Ken Kelber and Karen Savelli and Steve Costan and JJ in the morning crew, Peter Werby, and then, to also talk to some of the early management types like Tom Bender, who was the general manager of RIP for a long time, but he was also the program director back in the 70s, and Fred Jacobs, who was the program director and a consultant at the time, he was 
since the mid seventies has grown one of the largest radio consulting firms in the world. No question. So to be able to talk to those guys about the early days of riff and radio and the Detroit rock radio landscape, when riff came on, um, it was really, uh, it's been a lot of fun um, to be able to hear the stories. And I think that from the feedback that I'm getting from those that are listening to the podcast, I, I think they're finding it pretty interesting too. I, I think it's super cool. And, and you did mention Fred Jacobs because I, I, he is in my movie. I did interview him. Um, and you mentioned Arthur P because that's the one I really want to know about. I mean, he's like folklore in this. He's like, he's like Bigfoot because he doesn't make many appearances anymore. But uh, here's what Fred Jacobs, I was asking him about spontaneity and about, uh, you know, different as opposed to having programmed everything. And he tells a great story about Arthur P. I'm just go ahead, go ahead and play that. And so we would go into focus groups and we would just talk to random listeners about the radio station and they would remember hearing some of those ad lib moments more than they would the formatted ones. I mean, I remember the first time Stevie Ray Vaughan's Pride and Joy ended up on my desk. And I took one listen to that song and I just said, holy crap. This is so great. And Arthur was on the air, and I walked it down to him, and I said, you are going to, this is an Art Penhallow song. You are going to love this. I want you to play it next. And he said, okay, great, absolutely. Arthur did a real nice setup, played Pride and Joy. The song ends. There's a bit of a pause. The mic opens, and Art goes, that was so good, I'm going to play it again picked up the tone arm and put it back down on the record and played Pride and Joy a second time in a row. And I heard people talk about that moment years later. It was one of those spontaneous moments that happened, but that people remember. <laughs> I just love that story. I mean, you, you couldn't do that today, could you? Yeah, well, uh, maybe under some environments at Rift. <laughs> you know, it would be very uncommon to be able to do that. Yeah, you know, spontaneity like that is so is so amazing. And, you know, Arthur's baby, that came out of a moment of spontaneity as well. He was coming out of a Jay Giles song, and Peter Wolf was singing, baby, 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 baby. And Arthur came out of it with baby, baby, baby. And he just started to use it. And Detroit loved it when he said it, and and he started talking. He just kept using it. It's it's you know without that spontaneity, you're not going to get that kind of brilliance, you know. Yeah, it's and that's that's why I'm very excited about this project that I'm working on this documentary about the history of radio because there's so many stories like that, and, and that's that's actually how this movie started. Mike was it was just what happened to the rock and roll personality. You know, it, was, it started out as mm. you know to me you know, Dick Purton was no different than the music he was playing on the radio. You know, right. same thing with Arthur P. I mean, Great he was a celebrity. And yeah. that, and it was just, it yep. was, there was a reverence and, and that's, that's all but gone today. So that makes me sad. So that was the origin, the genesis of how this movie has evolved into something that, you know, now I'm, now I'm, you know, in a chronological manner, you know, displaying the history of radio for, for all who will want to watch. So I'm excited about it. You know, Ron, I, I think, you just explained kind of why terrestrial radio had, had, has already hit its apex is because, you know, the radio personalities at the time, they, the listeners did not separate us from the music. It was all this one beautiful thing that came out of their speakers. And, and they, again, what we talked about earlier, they just relied on us for every 
everything rock and roll related. They wanted, if we were hanging out with a band, they wanted to hear the stories because they couldn't go to YouTube to watch them themselves. Um, there wasn't a band's website or Facebook or Instagram to go to. I mean, it was just so very different. And I just don't think that a radio personality could really, who plays music at least, can really stand out enough um, to be able to be that that special to right. people anymore. Yeah. Yep, you're absolutely right. It doesn't look good for terrestrial radio, but we'll, but I tell you, if talking to Fred Jacobs, uh, he'll he'll motivate you. Like after I talked to Fred, like I remember asking him a question: Is radio dead? If not, if it is, why? And he goes, "I don't accept the premise that it is dead." And so I, as long yeah. as we got Fred Jacobs as a cheerleader, I think anything can happen, especially to the media. <laughs> well, and you know, Fred is such a creative guy. He is so smart. Um, and he's, he's always three steps ahead of everyone else. He's always been that way. Right. And, and not only Fred, but you know, you know, the radio industry together have figured out new ways that they can utilize the medium to really, at the end of the day, to get people interested, either eyeballs on their website or on their social media channels or listeners to their station. Um, the more people they can get participating um, the more they can pay ever, you know, for advertising and what they can do for advertisers is a lot more now because it can be kind of a multi-platform thing where it's not just a 60 second ad on meltdown show in the afternoon, but it can be that as well as all kinds of stuff online, all kinds of mentions on social media and things like that. So, you know, that's how radio is responding because without the dollars, the medium doesn't exist. So it is important to be creative and figure out how you can monetize all this different stuff. And the only way you're going to monetize it is if you have the people who are interested in it. So it's got to be interesting. Right. It just can't be fluff. Right. Exactly. And, and as we wrap up, I, I it's shifting gears a little bit because I, I got to tell you, one of the reasons that I, I mean, you talk about giving back, everybody talks about well, giving back, giving back, but you know, you realize that you've lived a, a blessed life and, and anytime anyone talks at you or talks to you, they, they can see that. But um, I know you don't do it for attention or prestige, but because you really care and you do genuinely want to give back, could you talk a little bit about the charity work that you do? I mean, you really make a difference, Mike. Could you talk about what you do? Well, I appreciate that, Ron. And, um, you know, I've always kind of had that spirit of giving. I learned it as a kid, always give 10% of what you earn uh, to help other people. So I've always just kind of, I think I was raised with that um, kind of value, you know. Um, and then it's really fun once you get into a position of leadership where you're leading a team of people and you can kind of rally people um, to be able to participate. Because I, I learned that a lot of people want to, quote, give back. A lot of people want to help. But it's hard to find an opportunity for them where you could say, be at this place at this time, and you're going to do this task to help these people. Um, if those types of things were readily available, I do think more people would, would help out. So we were looking for those types of things. And um, so from Mike Staff Productions, we still give away 10% of everything, um, all of our profits. Um, for a long time, we had a great partnership with Covenant House. Covenant House is a... Uh, uh, a national organization. They have a great Detroit chapter and they help um, youth, homeless youth in Detroit. You know, at any given time on the streets of Detroit, there are 5,000 young people on the streets with no place to go. It's just a mind boggling number if you think about it. There's no way in a country as rich as America, there should be 5,000 kids on the streets 
at night in the city of Detroit. So what Covenant House does is that they literally have vans of people going around looking for these these kids, and they give them an opportunity to come back to their campus, basically get their lives together. In a lot of cases, uh, they can't get a job because they don't have ID, they don't have social security cards, they don't have birth certificate. Um, so they'll help them with the basics like that. And then, um, you know, they'll get an education, help them get their GED or better yet, a high school diploma, teach them job skills. So it's Covenant House is such an amazing organization. Another thing we do regularly is just do food drives and things like that. I think the one thing that I have been most blessed with in my life um, are the trips that I've taken to Haiti. My, the first time I went to Haiti was about six months after the devastating earthquake in 2006, I think it was. And I mean, that country is already the poorest nation in the West, in the Western hemisphere. But after that, after that earthquake, I mean, it was, it was literally hell on earth. That's the way people would explain it. So to have the opportunity to go to Haiti and then to see the joy and the faith and the perspective that they have, is so inspiring it changes you forever when you see it say a quick story my first morning in haiti we get there the night before we're tired from the the trip we wake up we go to this orphanage school we had an interpreter a couple interpreters and we play a game with the kids kids probably 10 years old and we'd ask them questions and they would all eagerly raise their hands you know and the very first question this young guy raises his hand we ask him the question he answers it he comes up and we give him a Tootsie Roll as a prize, like one of the little Tootsie Rolls that's about an inch long. We give it to him. He runs back to his seat. All his friends are around him. He opens it up and starts breaking off little pieces and giving it to his friends. Hmm. He broke that thing into six different pieces. And I asked the interpreter to ask the boy why he did that. The boy didn't even understand the question. He looked confused on why I'd be asking such a question. And he finally said, I couldn't imagine having so much and not sharing it. Wow. And the how the profoundness of that statement to me, I mean, it just hit me like, wow, if this kid who literally has nothing but a Tootsie Roll feels like he has so much and he wants to share it, where does that leave me? Right. You know, I mean, I just felt, I felt like, wow, you know, there's a lot more to give back and a lot more things to do. So it's, you know, it's really cool experiences like that that drive the other things that I do. You know, so even when you're giving, so you're getting. Rewarding. Even when you're giving, you're giving. See yeah. how it works? It's amazing. Well, absolutely. You know, psychologists have said if you're down in the dumps or depressed, the best thing you can do is go help somebody else because you can't help but feel better when you're, you know, just doing something positive for somebody else. True story. Real quick, before we wrap, if people want to book you for a wedding or a DJ, uh, for to DJ a wedding or a wedding video services, how can they do that, Mike? Uh, MikeStaff.com uh, is the best and easiest way to go. Just go to the website, MikeStaff.com. You can fill out a form or get our phone number, and uh, our team will walk you through the whole thing. Um, I mean, you have my word that we are going to do a great job. Uh, at, at your wedding, and if we're not the good, you know, the right fit for whatever reason, we know everyone in the industry, so we could probably point in the right direction. As well. Thank you for tuning in today for Radio Days the podcast, uh, and of course, keep an eye out for the first episode of season two of Radio Days the podcast coming in a couple of weeks. 
Uh, again, if you'd like to help become a producer for the movie Radio Days 120 Years of Radio, click on the heart at the top of the uh, Buzzsprout page. You can also do that at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Every little bit helps, so thank you in advance. Today's show, again, produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography, um, headshots, maybe you need those. Uh, what about drone video or photography? Head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. You can also hear... Uh, previous episodes of Radio Days, the podcast there as well. Also, RonRobinsonStudios.com is where you get the uh, the apparel, hats, shirts, other gear. Uh, get your Radio Days, the podcast, hats and shirts at RonRobinsonStudios.com. Again, tune in in a couple of weeks for Season 2. Our first guest in Season 2 will be Mark Wilson from Parker and the Man. He's also been a TV broadcaster, but tune in for Radio Days, the podcast. Until then. You can't go! All the plants are going to die.